If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 7. That's where we're going to be today, the first 12 verses. I've been eager to preach on this text for you, not only because I think that it will be very timely for us, but also because there are a number of viewpoints that stem from verses and chapters like these. This is one of those Old Testament passages that is most commonly drawn upon for a person to find his or her view of the end times, or at least in order to help inform that in some way. And so we will certainly be talking about the end times as we get through this chapter. I think it's going to take me about three weeks to get through Daniel 7. I, I think we're going to be going at a blazing fast speed through verses 1 through 12, um, and I'm going to try to slow down and explain some parts, because one of the chief needs of a preacher as he delivers a sermon is that he would be an explainer. My hope is that you would understand the text, not just take my word for my summary, my interpretation of it. My hope is that I can explain it and it would be edifying to you. I have throughout my sermon notes today a whole bunch of disclaimers, and the disclaimers all can be summarized by saying this, I'll get to that next week, okay? And so there's going to be a handful of times that I'll, I'll, I'll notice. I know there's probably questions about what I just said, or you might even go, well, what about this verse, or can, can you explain a little more? I hope to build on what we talk about today in the upcoming weeks. Um, I've become very, very familiar with this text, with the views, the end times, viewpoints that stem from it. I hope to try to help you as much as possible through it. But today, we're just going to open up the first 12 verses and seek to answer a couple of questions by the time we get to our our end of the sermon today. Read with me, if you will, verses 1 through 12. Uh, Then I'll pray, and we will go back through and unpack a verse or two at a time. Starting at verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour mush flesh. After this, I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw on the night visions and behold a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. 
a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Let's pray. Father, as I seek to help my brothers and sisters here in understanding the text here, I need your guidance. Help me to be true, clear, and helpful. Father, open our hearts to know how to glorify you more because of what we learn from this text. Love one another better because of this text. And Father, please help us to apply these things. We wouldn't just read and forget, but that we'd know how to deal with things in our day better because of what we read here. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage begins in verse 1 again. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Now, the whole book of Daniel is not written chronologically. The first six chapters are The next six chapters aren't. The first six chapters detail historical events that take place during his life. So those are going to go in order. But starting here at the beginning of chapter 7, we're going to get a prophetic vision retelling of Daniel. This is kind of like reading his personal dream journal about the prophetic visions that Daniel privately had. He's going to record for the next six chapters. And each of those visions take place during the historical events of the first six chapters. Perhaps that's why, starting in the very next verse after this one, and continuing to the end of the book, the third person accounting, so Daniel did, Daniel saw, Daniel went, switches to first person for the rest of the book, minus one odd out-of-place verse in chapter 10. It'll all of a sudden go to I, Daniel, and it'll all be from first person for the rest. So we're going to see right here in the first verse a flashback. This does not follow on the heels of the events of chapter 6. This actually goes back to the events that predate chapter 5. Belshazzar is the character that's brought up here. Remember, this was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar who was ruling Babylon during the events of chapter 5. He ruled in Babylon under the authority of his father, Nabonidus, Belshazzar did. Nabonidus at the time was on the run from the Persians, and his son was a co-regent in Babylon itself. He was the one who was ruling during the handwriting on the wall, giving judgment to him over his grand party where he had used the artifacts from the temple in Jerusalem to profane the God of Abraham. That's that, Belshazzar. It was during the first year of that reign that Daniel sees this dream, this vision in his head. He wrote it down so that we would know what it was. Verses 2 and 3. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts, great beasts, came up out of the sea, different from one another. So what he sees in this vision is a great sea, and four beasts coming out of it. Now, as is often the case in the Bible, the great sea language here represents the earthly realm from which the pagan nations arise. Uh, the, The idea of a great sea almost always has negative connotations to it. It's always talking about chaos, 
disorder in which our fallen world lives and dies. In fact, literally from the first chapter of Genesis to the very closing chapters of Revelation, that word for see is used on repeat in this kind of way. In fact, Revelation 21 and verse 1, when we see the introduction of the new heavens and new earth, the final state for believers after final judgment is complete and all believers finally get to stand before the Lord and be with him for forever, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Now this doesn't mean that there will be no ocean in the new earth but that there will be no source of chaos, no source of disarray, no source of disorder in that perfect place. The death and decay, the corruption that was introduced into the world at the fall of man in Genesis 3 will finally be reversed. Creation will be restored to the idyllic form it once had. That's what it means, that the sea is no more. It is not at all insignificant that in the Old Testament, Moses marched his people through the sea in order to get them out of the enemy's hands. And that was, to be sure, a literal historical event with great symbolic significance. It is also not at all significant that in Jesus' life, one of his most notable miracles is that he calmed the sea. Again, a literal historical event. It happened in the Sea of Galilee, that lake in the northern part of Israel. And yet it was also deeply symbolic that Jesus has claimed final authority over the realms even of chaos and disorder. God always has and always will retain full authority over even this chaotic world. Which is what we see in the reference to the four winds of heaven. You see, the first thing he saw was not the sea. It was actually the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. That's actually significant. The fact that the sea is being stirred up by the four winds of heaven convey that the arrival of each of these beasts in history is of divine initiative. In other words, it is God who activates each of these beasts in turn on the world stage in history. And as we will see later, it is God who grants each of them their limited, albeit real, authority to rule. These great beasts are, of course, a significant part of this vision. And so we're going to look at each of these beasts in turn. The first three are listed in a single verse each. So let's look one at a time, starting in verse 4. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Now, perhaps surprisingly, scholars are in near-unanimous agreement on the identification of these first three beasts, and also largely, still in a majority, in agreement on the fourth beast. That's actually quite surprising, considering how symbolic this language is. But one reason that we can have such agreement... Such confidence in that view here is because this vision is not isolated from the rest of Daniel, this book, or the rest of the Bible. You might even remember that back in chapter 2, Daniel helped Nebuchadnezzar who saw a vision from God and he interpreted the vision. Do you remember what that vision was about? It was about a statue, a single statue made of multiple parts 
And those parts, as Daniel would interpret, represented kingdoms, one after the next in succession. And he even named the first kingdom. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold on that statue. So scholars are almost, almost uniform in their agreement that these four beasts in chapter 7 correspond to the very same kingdoms referenced in chapter 2. And so we'll see that time and again as we work through this. The first beast then corresponds to Babylon. Babylon. He says, like a lion. Now first, let's point out the obvious here. This beast is not a lion. It is like a lion. Now that's important because we need to remember this is a vision. And as visions go, there are elements of those visions that have meaning, that have significance, but are often hard to convey. So Daniel sees these things, and he's trying to explain what he saw. If you read any of the other visions of heaven in the Bible, uh, Isaiah's vision of the heavenlies, Ezekiel's vision, if you see John's revelation, a lot of it is really hard. Wait, wait, how does that work with, I thought he said this and not. It's hard to get to the bottom of because it is not your typical dream, and you and I know how hard even those can be to explain upon occasion. Therefore, it might be very difficult for us to reconstruct what he sees in our minds. It's hard for him to even convey it. It's not an eagle. It's not a lion. It's like a lion. It had eagle's wings. I looked as its wings were plucked off. We should be cautious to not get too rigid or dogmatic about the features of these beasts. I do believe that they have significance. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been mentioned. But the Bible doesn't authoritatively tell us exactly what each of these features means. Yet, we can probably conclude a few things as long as we're not too dogmatic about it. You might know, historically, that the winged lion was a national symbol of Babylon. In fact, you can still see art, mosaics, even giant statues of a lion with wings on it that represented kings of Babylon and their false gods. So it wouldn't be surprising then that God would use that image for Daniel's sake. What's with the tearing off of the wings? What's with the putting him on his feet like a man? Well, perhaps the tearing off of the wings and then the placing of the beast on his feet like a man is reminding us of Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation and subsequent restoration. Remember that in uh, chapter 4, we saw Nebuchadnezzar, who was the golden head. He was this king of Babylon, that he was taken from his position of power. Dominion was robbed from him, and he was laid for seven years out on the ground like a beast, and he lost his mind until God restored him back on his feet like a man and gave him back the mind of a man. Seems likely to me that's what's in mind. It's helping us identify this beast as Babylon. The next beast, in verse 5, and behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. This second beast, like the second kingdom in the listing in Daniel 2, corresponds to Persia, the media Persian empire. Again, it's not a bear. It is like a bear. Many scholars have noted that this empire began as an alliance between two kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians. But Cyrus the Persian eventually became the sole heir to this dual kingdom, which would be known throughout history as the singular empire of Persia. So the Persia part eventually dominated the Median part. 
Maybe that's the idea of the one side raised up over the other, both existing one in dominance over the other. As for the three ribs in the mouth, that could refer to the three major enemies that Persia conquered in its history, Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. Those were the three major world powers that they overthrew. And as you see, this beast was commanded to devour much flesh. The Persian Empire expanded the previously established borders of the Babylonians quite a bit. In fact, they even took over parts of Europe all the way up until they were halted by the third beast in the next verse. After this, I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. This beast corresponds to Greece. It was the Greeks that eventually halted and then defeated the Persian advance westward. You might even remember the story of King Leonidas in history with his 300 Spartan warriors holding the pass at Thermopylae against the Persian immortal army led by Xerxes. They held them off in such a time so that the historians today look back and even will call the subsequent Greek naval victory at Salamis to be one of the most important military battles in the history of the world that finally stopped the Persian advance westward. Some will even claim that it was the battle that preserved the West, even up to our day. Yet again, it's not a leopard, but like a leopard. And it has wings, perhaps to convey the swiftness with which the most famous Greek ruler, Alexander the Great, conquered the Persian Empire from the Mediterranean all the way to India. And he did so in a few short years. You'll remember from history that Alexander died young, while in his prime. And his empire was split into four parts and turned over to his four generals, Ptolemy, Seleucus, Cassander, and Antigonus. These are quite likely the four heads referenced here on this leopard. Now, the history of this third beast will be unpacked in amazing detail in the next chapter. We're going to... it's extraordinary the kinds of details Daniel foretells about this later. But I want to quickly summarize these first three beasts because this is about all we see about them. They are different from one another, as the text says, but they are all predators. They dominate the landscape in their day. They are fearsome. I want to take a quick note here as well. Each of these animals is used earlier by the prophet Hosea as he explains God's judgment against Israel and what it is like. Listen to what it says in Hosea 13. So I, God says, I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. Same three predators in that area used there to talk about God's judgment. In John's revelation, at the very end of the Bible, he also sees a vision of a beast, which we will definitely be getting into in future weeks. But the beast mentioned there shares the same animal properties as these three. Revelation 13, 2 says this, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. All three of those yet again. And each of these three beasts had been given some kind of authority by God. Did you notice that in there? The first was given a mind of a man, God's intervention. The second was commanded, arise, devour the earth. The third was given dominion. None operated beyond God's control but within it. 
And these three are only mentioned two more times in the rest of the chapter, and even then only incidentally, collectively. They're never identified individually again. First beast, second beast, third. It, it never states any of their features again. It just states beasts. So as imposing as these beasts must have looked to Daniel, it is clear that they are not the lead characters in this vision. They are eclipsed by the vision of the fourth beast. And verse 7 tells us about that one. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. You might have noticed the language that introduced the fourth beast. He didn't just flow and then the next one. He didn't do that. After He paused. After this, after those three, I saw in the night visions, and behold, take a look, take note, focus up. This clues us into a bit of a break in Daniel's flow. He's only going to do this one more time before he introduces us to Jesus Christ later in this chapter. So it's here to say, brace yourself for this one. Behold, something special and significant. And he describes the beast as terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. This beast is attributed with frightening characteristics, far more so than the previous beasts. Because he has iron teeth. He went about devouring. He broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. As these other nations had come and they had done their bit of devouring and their conquering and their, their arise, devour much flesh, like even the Persians, it says there. Whatever was left, Rome stamped out. This beast was different from the rest. It even says that right there in the text. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. You know, don't you, that that's the next empire in succession was the Roman Empire. The Romans who eventually took over where the Greeks had left off. It was that empire that was in power when the Messiah himself walked on this earth, lived and died, was raised again. And ascended into heaven. And he was different. That beast, different than the others before it. But perhaps the most notable features on this dragon are the horns. And it had ten horns. In fact, the next verse says that. Notice something about these horns. Verse 8 says, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Now, it's not identified right here because he's only seeing the vision. Later, an angel will give him the interpretation of the vision. So we're going to unpack way more when we go through that part about the features. But I will just say quickly here, the horns represent human rulers, human earthly kings. That's what these horns are and the singular great horn that rises up. But the vision isn't over. There's more to be said about this fourth beast. And it is said after we see another intermission, an important part of his vision. And this vision is a heavenly one of God himself. Look at 9 and 10. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. 
His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. This is an awesome vision of God himself, which is the only way a person could see God is in a vision. Because if anyone saw the face of God in reality, he would die. And yet, we have three of these such visions in the Old Testament. Dream-like visions, accountings that are, again, hard for us to recollect. Hard for us to kind of rebuild in our minds to get a good vision of it. What exactly did he see? He does his best to explain it here for us. But it is an awesome vision of God himself. It is similar to the prophetic vision of Isaiah and even Ezekiel about what they see in God. Full of power and majesty. And God here is called the Ancient of Days. It is a name that's only used here in Daniel, but it's used three times in this passage. And it highlights God's eternal nature. He was not a beast like the others. He was not stirred up to power. He did not come from the sea, that place of chaos. He always was. The throne belongs to him. And he sits in it. As he executes judgment. Now I would be amiss if I didn't quickly whisk you away to Revelation chapter 20. Because this very same scene that's being given to Daniel way back in those days before Jesus is given again to John in the New Testament about what will happen at final judgment. So I want to read this to you from Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. Then I saw, John says this in his vision, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. You see all the same features already there? We see the whiteness. We see the throne and one seated on it. We see throngs of people before him. We see power and majesty referenced. We see books opened, all of these things. It's unmistakable the correlation between Revelation 20 and Daniel chapter 7. I wonder if Daniel saw John. I'm just kidding. I don't know. But think about this with me. He sees a thousand thousands. That's a million. He sees 10,000 times 10,000. That's a hundred million. Now, I've said this before when we talked about visions. Visions impart a kind of knowledge a person couldn't gain from their own sight. So while he's probably talking in a little bit poetic kind of language, meaning a very large number, it's certainly more than 100. And he didn't go one, two, three, four, five, six, to count it up. The point is there's a multitude standing before the throne. There are those that serve him, and many more that stood before him, in front of him. Where does a judge sit? At the front. Where does everyone else stand? Right before the judge. This is the moment of final judgment. The great and small standing before the throne, and the books were opened, like it says in Revelation 20. This is the same scene described in Daniel. I'll continue the Revelation account. Listen to what else it says. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. There's the sea again, that place of chaos with death. 
Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You need to know that in eternity, there are only two options for you. Eternal joy in the presence of God forever in the new heavens and the new earth, or the lake of fire for those who do not love and honor our Lord. That's it. There is no third class. There are no middle ground conscientious objectors. There's no one standing between the two poles. This is the end of human history. You need to know that as a sinner standing before the throne of God, you deserve judgment. And what is he going to judge you by? Your deeds. The books are open. What are those books? They record all of the deeds of your life. And I've heard people say before, well, God will judge my heart. Whoa. As we say here, your heart is not an asset. It is a liability. Jesus says, oh, you think you're not in trouble because you haven't actually done certain wicked deeds like murder or adultery? I will judge your heart. This means that our wicked thoughts and deeds, anything does not align with the perfection and righteousness and holiness of God will be judged as sin. We will be judged according to the books as they are opened. And all of us, everyone deserves his right and just wrath. We deserve the flames to be burned with fire, thrown into the lake of fire. This is all, great and small, anyone who's ever lived, standing before the Lord in judgment. But there is hope for you. If you repent of your sins, stop trusting in your good deeds, and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ alone, his righteous deeds will be counted on your behalf according to that faith. And so when the books are opened and those who are not in the book of life are judged according to the deeds, they will fall and be punished for it. But you who have faith in Jesus Christ will not be judged according to your deeds, but Jesus' deeds that put you in the book of life. If you're not a believer today, you need to repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus. There are only two possibilities, heaven or hell. That's all you're going to get and when you inevitably and certainly die. If you haven't believed on Jesus Christ for salvation, you need to do that today. Talk to a believer. Don't close this book until you have repented of sins and turn in faith to him. Your eternal destination depends upon it. Now that we see God seated here for judgment, this is the judgment scene moment. We haven't heard what happens to the beasts. We can assume. But now he's about to say, so the throne, seated, God is seated on the throne. The books are open. Well, what's going to happen to these beasts? And that's what he says next. Verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. I guess we can surmise that he was judged according to his deeds and they were not good. Judgment was the result. His body was given over to be burned with fire, just like we saw in Revelation. The lake of fire is where the beast is thrown. This is final judgment. This is final judgment. Make no mistake about it. That's what's being referenced here. But wait, Daniel. What about the other three beasts? 
they going to get off scot-free? Or are they also going to be destroyed by the fire? And that's what the next verse answers. Look at verse 12. As for the rest of the beasts, those are the three, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, I want you to think carefully with me here, because if you get out of order, this is going to be very difficult to understand. I don't believe the events of verse 12 come after the event of verse 11. Rather, the event in verse 12 is telling us what had already happened so that we don't miss what happened to those three beasts. Let me explain that. How do they survive beyond final judgment? Well, they don't. Each of these beasts had their dominion taken away at the fall of their empires, okay? The beast uh, that is the, the corresponds to Babylon. That dominion was taken away when? When Persia conquered Babylon. Well, when did Persia, when was the, the, the dominion taken away? When Greece subsequently conquered Persia. That's what was going down here. Their dominion was stripped from them in turn, but they didn't have their lives fully snuffed out until final judgment. Their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I think the reason that that's stated here is so that we see the difference between the first three and the fourth. The first three, dominion was gone, but they weren't finally judged yet. But the fourth beast will survive and in some ways thrive all the way until final judgment. I think that's the point of this being stated this way. This verse distinguishes between the first three and the fourth because they each lost their dominion but lived on, but the fourth beast will lose his dominion and his life in one fell swoop. There will be no human history where we live without any beast's interaction. The beast will survive until the days of final judgment. More on that next week. I just want to draw our attention to a couple of questions that I know arise with this kind of passage because I think this does relate to how we're to live and think and operate within our world today. Let's just ask the question then, what are these beasts? I already told you they correspond with Babylon. For the record, I was very careful to use that language. They correspond with. They correspond with Babylon, Persia, and Greece. I think it's actually quite important. There's a lot to unpack here. I seek to answer questions today and as we continue in this series. But what do these beasts represent? I think that these beasts represent the demonic power behind earthly rule. The demonic power behind earthly rule. So not a singular king, not even necessarily a singular kingdom, although they certainly correlate, but the demonic power behind them. I think that's why it means that a beast can have its dominion taken away, but its life continue. They are the spiritual forces of darkness that are at work behind the earthly kings. In chapter 10, we're going to be there in a couple of months now, we're going to get to an even clearer look at these spiritual powers behind the nations, actually the exact ones that are referenced here. In chapter 10, if you've ever read through Daniel or have any familiarity with that passage, you might remember that an angel is sent by God to Daniel to bring him aid. Daniel cries out to God. And three weeks go by, and Daniel's still mourning and feasting, or, uh, fasting and crying out to God. And finally, when the angel arrives to comfort and care for and take care of Daniel, do you remember what that angel says? 
He said the reason that he was delayed was because, I'm going to quote it here, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. That does not mean that Xerxes was so strong and mighty that an angel couldn't crawl over him to get to where Daniel was. That doesn't mean that earthly material arrows can pierce the flesh of an angel. This is a spiritual demonic force. That's the reference there. It's a demon battling the angel in a heavenly realm. But the demon is specifically identified. You notice he's not called Chuck. He's the prince of Persia. He's associated with a nation, with a kingdom. He is the power behind all of those Persian kings. Just like the beast, that is the lion-like beast here behind Babylon, he was the power behind Nebuchadnezzar and Nabonidus and, and Belshazzar, behind all of the Babylonian powers, not just one. I think that's the idea in mind. In fact, later in chapter 10, after the passage, when the angel says, I had to battle the prince of Persia, he says, after the battle of the prince of Persia, I'll read it, it says, behold, the prince of Greece will come. And we'll have to battle him as well. And like we just saw, the prince of Persia, the, the demonic force behind Persia, will be replaced by the demonic force behind Greece. But these heavenly angels have to fight again. Michael, Michael is a named angel in the Bible that refers to the angel assigned to care for, watch over Jerusalem, the promised land at that time. There's a lot of spiritual force at work behind the scenes of history. So when dominion is taken from the beasts, but their lives are prolonged for a season and a time, this means that the kingdoms of Babylon, Persia, and Greece have been unhitched from the demonic control, sort of an exorcism of a nation, but that the demons were still preserved for a future time of judgment. That's what, that's what that means. The Persians all died. All the Babylonians died. All the Greeks died. Their flags were burned. Their, their, their culture's dead. But the demons that were the power behind them will live on until final judgment. And we see this all over the rest of the New Testament. We see this kind of idea again. You might even remember, during the life of Jesus... He cast out 2,000 demons from a man in the region of the Gerizines. Do you, do you remember that? Uh, the, he was so strong. It says about this, pro, it was probably two guys, looks like the harmonization of the accounts would tell us, that were so empowered by 2,000, maybe, demons, that they were materially strong. It wasn't just that they had crazy thoughts. They literally could break chains. How is that possible? Because demonic forces actually do, and actually did at that time interact with the material world. No one could stop these strong dudes. And what did those demons say when Jesus confronted them? Do you remember what the demons said to Jesus as he was getting ready to exercise them out of the man? I'll read it for you. Have you come here to torment us before the time? That's what the demons say. And what do they ask him? What do they request of Jesus? Cast us into the pigs. Why? Don't kill us yet. It's not final judgment. And so what Jesus did, he took away their dominion. They no longer had control over those men. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. That's the spiritual reality of what happened there. Same thing is referenced in Jude, verse 6, about, a, about angels even in our past 
Even prior, back to the, the, the days long before even Daniel, it says this, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Same thing. Dominion was taken from them, but their lives were prolonged. Until when? Until final judgment, where all will be dealt with. The demons of Babylon... Persia, Greece, have their day, but those days are over. And while final judgment has not been executed on them yet, it will certainly be. But the fourth beast, as the text tells us, is different. The fourth beast is different. How? Well, in one way, as we already said. His dominion and life will be snuffed out at the same time. He won't die and then dominion let us, his, his dominion won't be taken away and it'll just allow the, the life to go on for a while. That will happen in one fell swoop. But there's also another way that the fourth beast is different. The fourth beast is the satanic power behind that Roman Empire. Not merely demonic, but Satan himself. Rome was the next subsequent empire that dominated the Mediterranean world, that same region, the same place we're talking about. And I believe that Rome was under the direct influence of Satan himself and not any of the underling demons. Not a lesser demon, but the prince of demons, the great deceiver, the ancient serpent, the devil. And that's actually what was prophesied back in Genesis 3. At the fall of man, Adam and Eve sinned, and the curses were doled out. What did God say to the serpent? That he will bruise the heel of the offspring, the coming Messiah. Not that he will hear about it. Oh, I heard apparently this Jesus guy. No. There is some way in which Satan was behind the murder of Jesus in that Roman Empire and not merely observing from a distance. Satan himself, you'll remember, showed Jesus all the surrounding land around Palestine. Remember in the temptation of Jesus? He stood on a mountain. And what did he say to Jesus? If you worship me, I will give you all these kingdoms. And why did Jesus not go, those aren't yours? Because they were his. In fact, Jesus himself refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. That's why he came, to cast him out, to bind the strong man. That's what he came for. We know that Satan was present and active in Israel during the days of Jesus. Not only does he personally tempt Jesus, but he deceives Peter actively, personally. He enters into Judas, the betrayer, personally. That wasn't just a demon, a spirit, a random spirit. No, the devil, Satan, entered Judas to betray Jesus. It's even Satan's sons, the Pharisees, as Jesus calls them, who lead the charge in killing Jesus and then pursue the saints. There is a kind of satanic activity during the life of Jesus Christ that's exactly what we would expect in this showdown because the promise was that that offspring would crush the head of the serpent and not just one of his underlings. Something happened at the cross to break Satan's hold on the earth. And while he is certainly still now seeking to devour and destroy today. He's a prowling lion looking for somebody to devour. 
His power has been greatly limited. And why? Because the authority that was once his has been stripped of him and given to Jesus. That's what happened. Jesus even said as much in Matthew 28. After his death, burial, resurrection, he came to new life. Death could not hold him. And what did Jesus say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. He was given that authority as one who went to the cross. God stripped that dominion from Satan and gave it to Jesus. This world now belongs to him decisively. How the reign of Satan in ancient Rome relates to us today, where we will unpack next week. Let me read one commentator who describes the view that I'm saying here. His name is Steve Gregg. He wrote, The beast is the governmental incarnation of Satan himself, thinly disguised in political systems or personalities. So let me recap. The fourth beast is not Satan himself, nor is it a human ruler, nor is it a singular earthly kingdom. It is kind of D, all of the above. It's kind of all of it. The fourth beast is the earthly manifestation of Satan's power in human affairs. That's what it is. And that's why he is different from all the beasts who came before him. As I said multiple times and disclaimered at the beginning, much more on this. I want to try to explain more of how I see this, where it is in the text here, elsewhere in the Bible as well. I think it'll be helpful. But as point of application, as we close today, let me help you consider this. There are spiritual forces at work behind wicked governments. There are spiritual forces at work behind wicked governments. I say governments. This is not just talking about the random individual sin life of a particular person, right? This is empires. This is nations, past nations being described. But Christians, I think, have fallen for the lie that is basically materialism imposed into history. You see, Christians are reasonably good at pushing away materialistic worldviews into areas of, let's say, evolution. Mankind came from apes. We weren't designed like God says. We weren't created in six days like he says. Uh, No, we just came about happenstance, godless origins. A lot of Christians have fallen for some of that stuff over time, and others have pushed back. But it seems like many Christians have just totally bought into the materialistic view of world history. Well, that's just what happens when people interact with people. Brothers and sisters, there's spiritual forces at work in the world, both in Daniel's day and today. Spiritual forces, demonic work taking place. It is not sensationalism to say so. It is not alarmism. It is the clear indication of texts like these and many others. All wicked rule is at root satanic. When you observe government officials imposing tyranny on people, that is demonic. It is satanic. It's not just not my preference. It is sinful and evil, and it is under the influence of demonic forces. Brothers and sisters, it is not wrong for Christians to be skeptical of governments. In fact, I'd say, oh my goodness, please be skeptical of your governments. Not only are governments comprised of sinful 
leaders, sinful people, individuals who are sinners by nature and by choice, but also there are demonic forces moving behind the scenes seeking to influence powerful people. And there always have been. And there will be until the day of final judgment. Now, this, of course, does not mean that it is impossible in our day for there to be any good in earthly governments. Not saying that at all. On the contrary, there certainly can be. In fact, civil authorities have been appointed by God for a purpose, and we are commanded to submit to their authority. There's no such thing as Christian anarchy. We submit ourselves to right rule. But there are only three ways that a government might not sprint into abject despotism today. There's only three ways that that can be paused. First, when the authorities themselves are redeemed. Christians, not slaves to sin and unrighteousness, when the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is at work on them. That's one way. Proverbs 28.5 says, Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. It is a good and honorable blessing for a nation when its leaders fear God. Brothers and sisters, we want more real Christians in power today. When God's enemies rule, they make things more like hell. When God's people rule, they make things more like heaven. And I know there have been plenty of false believers in history who have manipulated people by claiming the name of Christ. And they have proven by their actions they are not believers. We should want true, real Christians in power today. If we love our neighbors and want what's good for them, blessing on our nation, we need Christians with Bibles open, trusting God as ultimate judge who even sees their secret deals and the sinful impulses of their hearts exposed. We need Christians in those seats, not so we get some power, but for the good of creation. Three ways a government might not rush into abject despotism. One, Christians in office. Two, the common grace of God. God may just in his goodness and his greatness, his kindness, unmerited mercy and favor for his great purposes, he may restrain certain, even non-believing leaders, that they wouldn't be as wicked as they could. And that is a kindness of God. And we should praise him for that. We should thank him. Our leaders could, could be much worse than they are. If you watch the news a lot, it might be hard to feel that way sometimes. But, but it is true. They could be way worse. Thank you, Lord, for your common grace on restraining evil. Third way, third obstacle to a government rushing into abject despotism, when wicked governors are restrained by their people. When wicked governors are restrained by their people. Held in check. Held accountable, we might say. No earthly authority is unlimited. None. We have a responsibility to hold our civil authorities accountable. All earthly governors are to rule by the consent of the governed. All. Whether they call themselves a king, an emperor, a president, a prime minister, a judge, doesn't matter what the title is. 
all earthly rulers rule by the consent of the governed. It is how the Bible designed for rule to work. When the people consent to the wicked rule, things spiral sharply downward. But when people resist, even peacefully, I don't mean start a war, then we do not allow our leaders to flush our nations down the proverbial toilet. Have you ever asked yourself, what would happen if a government made a wicked, tyrannical command, but the people just disregarded it? No, we're not doing that. What would happen? Nothing. That would rob them of their power. All the power comes by the consent of the people. They would have none if people didn't obey. Listen, we have biblical examples of this. Approved. King Saul was the first king of all of Israel, united all together. And before David even comes on the scene, you think of King Saul battling against King David for who should be the rightful ruler kind of thing. And God had said, David is the one to replace Saul, but David uh, wasn't yet being put in the position of power. No, no, before David, prior to David and Goliath, prior to Saul ever even having a connection point with this David in that capacity, the people of Israel are at war with the Philistines. And Saul made a law as the king. He said, if anyone eats anything today, you will be put to death. They were in the midst of a battle. He wanted to kill off the Philistine army, and he didn't want anyone to pause and stop and have lunch and let the enemy get away. That's what he was thinking. He was foolish. He was, he was totally foolish about it. But he made a command to the people, none of you may eat a thing. Well, his son, Jonathan, didn't hear the command. He was off fighting and winning another side of the battle. So when Jonathan rushes into the forest to, to now, he, he beat off his enemy. Now, now he comes in to beat the rest of the enemies off with, uh, with the rest of Israel, and he makes his way through a forest dips his staff into some honey and takes a bit of it on his lips because he's hungry. All right, let's go back to battle. The king finds out about it later after an investigation, and the king says, you have broken the law. You must die. What did the people say? Do you remember? What did the people who are under the government of King Saul, who made a declaration, all them, they didn't do it. They didn't need to eat it because they knew what would happen. The king would point them to death. What happened? The people said, no, king, not happening. I'll read it for you. 1 Samuel 14, 45. Then the people said, the people said to their king, the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Winning of the battle. Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. And what happened? Jonathan lived. It says that the people ransomed Jonathan so he did not die. They did not consent to the wicked law, and the king was powerless to act. All unbelieving earthly rule originates from a single source, the sea, chaos, corruption. Just like in Daniel 2, it's one statue, not a bunch of different statues, A bunch of different demons battling it out for power. No, there's a singular source to wicked government. All earthly opposition to God has one source, Satan. Demonic forces working together against God and his people. When you and I deal with wicked governments today, we are dealing with Satan. 
Satanic forces and power at work. When you and I submit then to unjust, ungodly, and wicked rule, we are submitting to Satan. This, of course, does not mean that we should have no submission to government generally. We're commanded to. But we are not commanded to submit to tyranny. In fact, I believe we should oppose it. Francis Schaeffer wrote this in regards to Samuel Rutherford's famous work called Lex Rex. He writes this, Since tyranny is satanic, not to resist it is to resist God. To resist tyranny is to honor God. Brothers and sisters, you and I need to be well aware that we are in spiritual warfare right now. Ephesians 2 says it like this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. There's that language again. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's the spiritual warfare we find ourselves in. Satan will be at work in this world through governments until the very end, and we must expect this level of opposition. And how are we to fight back? How are we to resist this? Ephesians continues into chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is what we're facing. You need to know the word of God. You need to prepare yourselves for battle every day. If you speak out against your wicked government, but you do nothing regarding the salvation of your lost brothers and uh, lost neighbors around you, the training of your children in righteousness, the repenting of sin inside of your heart and your mind and your life, you're not waging the real war. The real war is the spiritual one. Yes, I believe Christians ought to be far more involved in politics and government and ought to be trying to get into places of power for the good of everybody. That won't happen unless we first get to know the word and apply it every day of our lives. Put on our armor. Get ready for that battle. Acknowledge the spiritual realities. But lest we end with that kind of sour, minor note Be well reminded, God really is in control. As Daniel says earlier in this book, he changes times and seasons. He removes and sets up kings. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. King Nebuchadnezzar himself even said, he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And Jesus has been given all authority today. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this earth. And that means that his kingdom does not have earthly origins. It's altogether different. It is uncorrupted. It is permanent. And as citizens of his kingdom, we must lead the charge in our world to righteousness for the good of the glory of God and the joy of our neighbors around us. Let's pray. Father, this is a very trying time for believers and not because we're living in worse situations than other believers in the history of the world. Not at all. But because we can see the trajectory Father, we ask that you would help us do things today that may stave off horrendous hostilities towards brothers and sisters in Christ in the future and even our non-believing neighbors. 
Father, help us to make the right and wise choices. Help us to begin by fighting the spiritual battles, acknowledging the reality behind these things, not falling for the materialistic view of history and our times. Father, I pray that as a church we would continually call each other back to this time and time again, that we would not be those critical ones judging all the other people not doing things right, but we'd be the first to fall to our knees in humility and repentance, do the hard heart work to don our armor every morning of of our lives, that we may be ready for the battles that we will face. We love you and need your help in this and pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen.